All right, you can um, open your Bible to Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. And um, by uh, God's grace, I hope to, to start this series from the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, so today will be the first of hopefully 12 lessons. There are 12 chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to aim at getting through one chapter um, at a time. Um, having said that, I realize that the book of Ecclesiastes is a book about life experience. It's a book about looking back on life and seeing what had value, what didn't, um, the vanity that there is in life. Um, and I am, Lord willing, I still have a lot of life in front of me. And um, there's still a lot of lessons to learn. So I know that in, um, in 10 years from now, when I, when I have to, if I teach this again, or 20 years from now, I'll, I'll probably have more to say or a different perspective on it. And there's probably a lot of you older people, more experienced people, um, who would be able to um, perhaps see things in this that I don't see. But, but by God's grace and through the guidance of His Spirit, I, I really do hope that, that what we'll get from this text will really be a blessing to all of us. And that I think it's a very important book for every Christian to study and um, also to try and wrap our heads around it. Now, I think a question that, or something we should ask ourselves is, um, who of us would like to look back on life full of regret. Who of us would, would like to look back and um, say, I never learned from the mistakes I made? I don't think anyone has that specific desire. I think all of us want to say that I learned from the mistakes I made and that when I look back, yes, there are some regret, there's some regret, but I don't want a life filled with regret. And so this book, I think, helps us to, to answer those, those things. So the book of Ecclesiastes is a good place to start. It's written by an old, a wise, and inexperienced man, the King Solomon. Solomon takes time to reflect on his life. His life is filled with regret, and he wishes to impart wisdom to those who are willing to listen. In verse 1, we read the words of the preacher, the son of David, King of Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, say the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So like I said, he looks back on his life and he sees a lot of vanity and a lot of regret. And he calls us as he is a preacher and he says, listen and don't fall into the same trap. Now what exactly is the trap that Solomon stepped into? It's the trap that life promises to be very meaningful and potentially very fulfilling without God. That is what the world will promise you, that you will have fulfillment, you will have satisfaction, you will have purpose, even if you exclude God. And he ends up saying that that is a vain thought, that is emptiness. Now, you may ask the question, why preach this in the church if we're talking about people who say that there is no God, and that type of thinking leads to um, vanity or despair. 
Well, I think the thing is that it's actually a lot easier for the church, for Christians, to, to fall prey to the same type of thinking that there is true satisfaction, true fulfillment, and true purpose in the things that the world offers you. We are not immune to that temptation. We are still flesh. We are still being tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. These enemies are our common enemy. And because they're all of our enemies, we all fall prey to their deception. It doesn't matter whether you're saved. It doesn't matter whether you're lost. Now, we should have a different perspective, and the church should know that these things of the world cannot ultimately fulfill, yet sometimes we still live as if they can. And um, ultimately, if we give our lives to the pursuit of these things, we end up dry, we end up in despair, we end up in depression, we end up in these places where we have this expectation of what life is supposed to be, but it's not. And a Christian should not be an embodiment of despair and emptiness and vanity. It should be a light on top of a mountain showing here is the way to life, not the way to despair. Now, as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll read two phrases that come up the whole time. The one is under the sun, which shows up about 30 times. And you have the, the other word is vain or vanity, which shows up 37 times. Now, this word under the sun, which comes up about 30 times, is, I'll probably use it about 30 times today, but it's vitally important for the context of the book. That's why he repeats it so frequently. He's going to say, under the sun, this is vanity. And under the sun, your life will be filled with this. He's going to repeatedly say, under the sun. And what he means by that is to say that on this side, from this perspective, where you have nothing outside, nothing above the sun, you have just what you see down here. If that's all there is, there is no God, then all you are is dust to dust. There's nothing more. And that's why it's utter despair. And that is largely the view that we see from the secular humanist, the, the, the naturalist, the person who says that you are created by chance and when you die there is nothing, that it, your life is meaningless. And that idea is still prevalent today. We also have vanity or that which is vain. Now, he uses very strong language to, to, to depict what we see in the book of Ecclesiastes, or what life is all about according to life under the sun. And the reason he, I think he uses these, this, this strong language is because he's trying to, to wake us up to the reality that the pursuit of things under the sun is ultimately vanity. Now, when he uses the word vanity, he's referring to one of three things. It can either mean fleeting, as in wind, as in no substance, right? Fleeting. It can mean meaningless. It, there's absolutely no meaning in it. Or it can also mean incomprehensible. So when you read that all is vanity, he's saying it is fleeting, it passes, it's meaningless, or it's incomprehensible. Or sometimes it's a bit of all of that. In other words, I cannot understand why things are the way they are. I cannot understand why things work this way. I cannot get to the, to the bottom of why this is the way it is. There's, there's, an, there's an incomprehension of things under the sun 
if you are limited to what you see here. But if you have something external, it shines light on it. But fleeting, meaningless, and incomprehensible. Now, as I said, why the extreme language? Well, firstly, wake up. Wake up from potential deception. It's somewhat of a reality check. You see, our inclination is to think that there is way more meaning in the things this world has to offer than there truly is. We think that there is more satisfaction, more purpose, and more fulfillment in the things this world has to offer than there really is, and so he tells them to wake up. Also, I think it's also to focus our thoughts. Kind of like, I think the, the right word, maybe you can help me, Vicky, but it's blinders or blinkers on a horse. I don't know, a racing horse? Blinkers? Something like that? The flaps, right? It focuses your thoughts. Um, I think life has got, has got a lot of carrots and a lot of squirrels. Now, what do I mean by that? The carrot, the, the proverbial carrot that hangs in front of you, right? You're, you, this donkey is constantly chasing this carrot. He, he can't reach it, but he's constantly chasing the carrot, right? So, and, and, and the squirrel, I don't know if you've seen the animation movie Up, there's a dog. Or I, don't know, I can't remember if it's a bunch of dogs, but anyways, whenever there's, there's like squirrel, then the dog's distraction is completely distracted and he doesn't care what was going on around him. He's just focusing on the fact that there's a squirrel that he needs to chase. And I think what we see in the book of Ecclesiastes is stark, serious language because we're constantly seeing carrots and squirrels. We're constantly distracted by running off to some distraction or chasing something that we ultimately cannot reach. There is a lot of vanity. There is a lot of uselessness. There is a lot of meaninglessness in the things that we see in life around you. The carrot is a thing like, is, is it just a new thing or a promotion? Or, or if I have this relationship or this person, then it will fulfill and provide lasting purpose. No, it won't. Or a squirrel is that, 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 that hey, look here. Or don't think about that too long, because if you think about it too long, you'll realize that this is a bunch of hogwash and there's actually something deeper. So the world tries to distract you constantly. But just watch another episode. Don't, don't, don't go think about those deep things. Don't just go watch another episode. That, that's a lot easier. We are filled with squirrels and carrots. Now, our flesh is really not inclined to listening and to believing what we read in this book. Our flesh is inclined towards laziness, towards pride, towards sin, towards things that are contrary to what is true and revealed from God. And so it really takes persistence and focus to grasp what we're going to be reading and studying here. You need to apply your mind. You need to put the blinkers on. You need to focus on what God has put in front of us so that we can really learn from this book. And I think this pursuit of what is true, even though it's not always nice on the ear, of what is true is best. Because it's through the pursuit of truth that we pursue Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so we want to pursue Christ through pursuing truth, even if the truth is not always convenient, because it's the truth that leads to abundant life and fulfillment. And that is what we want to do. And that is why we're looking at this book. But before we get into it, let's ask the Lord to please help us as we go. 
Father, we come to you this morning and we ask you, Lord, to please guide every step of the way. Lord, we want to glorify you. We want to, we want to learn more about you. We want to learn more about this life under the sun. We want to learn more about the things that tend to vanity. And well, we want to live a life that has meaning and purpose and, and ultimately glorifies you, Lord. Please guide us. Guide us through your spirit. Give us ears to hear as we study this book this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Now, m my intention is to get through the whole chapter, but I fully acknowledge the fact that that might not happen. But let's, let's give it a shot. Either way. All right. Verse 1. The, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Now, this preacher, as I said, this is a reference to Solomon. You can see that the son of David, there is a reference to that in verse 12. It says, I, the preacher, was king in Israel, uh, king over Israel in Jerusalem. That's a reference to where he was ruling over. So we, we have an historical evidence that um, satisfy the fact that this is written by Solomon. Also, the nature of what he's writing about is wisdom and how he was given wisdom and how he used that wisdom and all of that we see constantly through the book. Now, the, 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 the word e Ecclesiastes is actually from the Greek word ecclesia, which is the word that is translated as church in the New Testament. So what we have here is this ecclesia, that's church, means called out assembly. That's what the word ecclesia means. So when we read about Ecclesiastes, we're reading about a group of people who have been called out to be separate, right? to be separated from the world. This is this called out group who this preacher is preaching to. So what, what, do we, what do we get in the book of Ecclesiastes? It is a sermon to those who are called out to be separate. It is instruction in wisdom from the preacher to those of us who have got ears to hear. That is what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. So if you are called out of the world to live a life that is different, live a life that is separate, here is some instruction for you. That is what the book of Ecclesiastes is. Verse 2, it says, Vanity of vanities, say the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Essentially, Solomon starts with his summary. He starts, have a look at chapter 12, verse 8. Chapter 12, verse 8 says, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. So after he's gone through all 12 chapters, he ends up exactly where he starts. In other words, he's building this case to say that everything is vain under the sun. Okay? Under the sun. He ends with his summary. All things under the sun are filled with vanity. Meaninglessness, fleetingness, and incomprehension. I think to an extent, Solomon was making a case against ancient secular thinking. The thinking that there is no God, and because there is no God, let's give ourselves over to whatever desires we have. And so in the book of Ecclesiastes, he is making the case against secularism by taking their position living it to its conclusion, and reporting back on it. He says, okay, here's what the secularist says. Here's what they believe. Now let me live it. Let me run it all the way through to its conclusion. Let me see if there's anything that I can get from this. And then he returns to write this book and says, it's all vanity. 
it's all meaningless. So throughout the rest of the book, this claim that he makes here and this claim that he ends up with, vanity of vanities, say the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He'll substantiate this claim as he goes through the book. How he'll do that is by looking at various aspects of life. He'll look at, firstly, in verse 3, you'll see the, the fact that we labor continually all the time. He's going to look at various aspects. He's going to look at our accumulation of things. He's going to look at um, relationships. He's going to look at the person who hands themselves over to, to, to work and someone who does not leave an inheritance. There's, there's so much that he's going to be dealing with in this book. But here he starts off in verse 3 with labor. Verse 3 says, What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun. The first thing I, there's three things I want us to look at is profit, labor, and under the sun. Profit, labor, and under the sun. Now profit, if I'm correct, profit is basically your gains minus your expenses. That's what your profit is in a high level summary. So Solomon's point is that the expenses of labor under the sun almost always outweigh the gains thereof. What you pay to get what you want costs more than what you get. Yes. In other words, there is no profit. You paid in more than what you got. Unfortunately, this, this bill of expenses often only comes in much later in life like it did with Solomon. It often takes um, staring the end in face before you truly tally up the cost. You have to be confronted with the fact that the end is nigh. And then you go and you look and you see that that which I paid is more than that which I gained. I believe God, through His Spirit, wrote this book to make us aware of the fact that the end is too late to check the books. You don't wait to the end to see where you're at in terms of profit. Rather do it as you go. It may be very difficult when it comes to these things to really tally up the cost, and that is why we have the book of Ecclesiastes, because it pricks your mind. It makes you think about this thing that I'm doing right now. Is it valuable. So we use this book to help us to determine where we're at as we go. I think it's very important to understand or to remember that this book understands you better than you understand it. In other words, you look at it and you don't really understand it, but it's telling you something about you that you don't know. So we need to approach it with that mindset to say that God is showing me something, even though it's foreign to my thinking, to my ears, it is true. And so we want to use this as our guide, not the way we think, not the way we perceive things. Secondly, I want us to look at the word labor. Labor. Now, notice he says labor, and he does not say the fruit or the good of your labor. He's focusing in on the labor itself. There's a difference, because have a look at chapter 2, Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 24. It says, Ecclesiastes 2.24, There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should take, uh, make his soul enjoy 
good in his labor. This also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. There is a difference between labor, for the sake of labor, and the good that we get from the fact that we have labored. There's a difference between what you do and why you do what you do. There's a difference between what you do and why you do what you do. There are good reasons to work. There are good reasons to take a promotion. But there are also bad ones. And often we know that this is bad or wrong or not what God wants, but we do it in any case because we have deceived ourselves to think that if we take this thing, it will somehow lead to something fulfilling. Even though from what we've known in God's Word, we know it not to be true. If your labor is something that is purely laborsome and distracts you from enjoying the good, enjoying the fruit of your labor, remember the fruit and the good of labor is the gift that is from God, so if it distracts you from the fact that this is something God has given you, then it's, it's not wholesome. It's not good. It's meaningless. You have the wrong aspect of labor. You don't want to overemphasize labor in and of itself. Also, I think when it comes to labor, the very next thing that's very important to understand is this phrase, under, under the sun. Solomon is not talking about laboring in things of eternal value. He's talking about laboring in things that are under the sun, that are limited to this life here and now. He's talking about working under the sun, for things under the sun, with no eye on things of eternity. Things under the sun, for things under the sun, with no eye on eternity. Christians fall prey to the same thing. It's not just the people out there. We also fall prey to these same things. Remember, this is part of living in a fallen world. Right? What happens in Genesis chapter 3? We sin, we fall into sin. What is part of the curse? Is that by the sweat of your brow, you will eat. You will labor to get food. And then it says, For from dust were you formed, and to dust you will return. From dust to dust. And all that labor is under the sun, if you purely keep it there, all that labor is, is a bridge between the, is, is bridging a dust gap. It's meaningless. You've got dusty and dusty, and all you're doing is taking yourself from dust to dust. It's, under the sun, it's meaningless. There has to be a view beyond it. You can't get stuck in labor under the sun. Now, this does not mean you shouldn't work. Okay? We know that we should work. In, in 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy that um, he who does not provide for his family is worse than an infidel. Right? In, in, in 2 Thessalonians, we know that he who does not work shall not eat. So working and doing what you're supposed to do is part of what you should be doing. In fact, it is something that the fruit thereof, the good thereof, is actually something that is profitable. It's actually something that has purpose. But doing it for the sake of just doing it, that's not good. So what's the point? Work because you have to. It's part of living in a fallen world. But don't overemphasize it 
or do it at the expense of things above the sun. Right? Don't overemphasize it and don't do it at the expense of things above the sun. Now, if you're a Christian, you know that you live under the sun. But your perspective should not be limited to that which is under the sun. Right? We live under the sun. We're in this world. That's, we're all in this together. Right? We're under the sun. But our perspective should not be limited to that. Why not? Because we have revelation. We have a message from someone beyond the sun. We are limited here. But God is above it. And He has revealed things to us. In fact, He has not just said certain things, but the one who made the sun is the one who became, who humbled Himself under the sun. Jesus Christ came from the one who created everything, humbles Himself and comes and lives the life that we live under the sun. Why? To show us that our life has purpose. To show us that our life is not just something that is from dust to dust, but that it has intrinsic value. It is of eternal significance. It is not just dust to dust. If it was just dust to dust, Jesus would never come. But He came to show us that there is eternal significance in our lives. And so all of a sudden, the life under the sun does not stay one that is just governed or just, I want to say, imprisoned by my starting point and my end point, but it is something that transcends this because of the one outside, the one who made the Son, the one who made me, and the one who became flesh and lived among us to give us and to show us that we are of value and importance. That is something that gives life the most purpose than anything else. You have to keep this in mind. Because if you don't, your life will end up in despair. Now what I think happens in the rest of the chapter is Solomon is going to try and substantiate the claim that he made in verse 2 and verse 3. He says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he says, There is no profit. Or what profit is there for a man for all his labor under the sun? And now he goes on to say, There is no profit. I am saying these things under the sun are meaningless because, firstly, life just goes on. Verse 4 to 7. Life just goes on. That's my first point. <laughs> Don't worry. It'll go faster. My first point of why labor under the sun is meaningless is because it just goes on. Verse 47. Secondly, verse 8 to 10, you'll see he's making the point that nothing is new. Nothing is new. Verse 11, he says that Nothing in this world lasts. And then, from verse 12 to the end, he says, even wisdom has its drawbacks. So, nothing lasts, life just goes on, nothing is new, and even wisdom has its drawbacks. And so that's why he's saying, all is vanity. Because all of these things have... What's the word? I want to say feninity. Is that a word? Finiteness. No, no, feninity. Okay. Your first point, 47. Life goes on. Let's read verse 47. It says, One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh. But the earth abideth forever. 
The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north, and whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place whence the rivers came, thither they return again. Life is in this endless cycle of repetition. Your labor does not affect the finitude of your life. Your labor does not affect the finitude of your life. You can work hard or not work. You've got to start. You've got to end. It's finite. It ends. That's it. Your, fin- it does not, your labor does not affect that. Your labor does not change the cycle of nature. Life goes on. All of creation seems to have an endless cycle. The sun, up and down, up and down. The wind goes to the north, goes to the south, comes back, cycles around. The rivers, they flow down into the sea. The sea evaporates as it comes down on the clouds, from the clouds on the mountain. It goes round, round, and round. All of creation has this cycle. But for some reason, it seems like man has a start and an end. In the middle of all these cycles, we have a straight line. Zero, hundred, two, gone. It doesn't cycle, right? And so he says life just goes on. Or at least that's the way it looks, right? Under the sun, that's the way it looks. The same river that my Opa Khuriki saw is the same river that I'm seeing. Sure, it may be wider, shallower, fuller. It's It's the same. Let me not get ahead of myself, but there is nothing new under the sun. That's what it seems like. It doesn't matter how much effort, how much attention you put into trying to change this fact, it remains the fact. And in fact, the more you try and run from it, the more you run to vanity. The more you try and run from the fact that your life starts and ends and that life goes on without you, the more you run towards vanity to try and hold that at bay. So what are we supposed to do? Have a look at Colossians chapter 3. Keep your place. Colossians chapter 3. As a Christian, this should be our viewpoint Colossians 3 verse 1 says, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. You see how immediately he takes our our minds to out from under the sun to above the sun? Set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. For ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Now it says set your affection on things above, right? It doesn't say... It doesn't say don't worry about the things of all. Don't care about the fact that you need to eat, that you need to take care of. It, doesn't, it says don't put your heart on it. Don't put your, your soul, your passions, your desires on things on the earth. Set it on things above. Um, that should be our response. In, 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 in contrast to what we see in the secular 
world and the thinking, our one should be of one out under the sun to above the sun where we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now in verse 8 it says, All things are full of labor. Sorry, back in Ecclesiastes 1. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. All things. It doesn't matter what your vocation is. It doesn't matter what, you, what task or project you just finished. The next one is waiting right around the corner. As you finish one, in fact, probably while you're still busy with one, the next one is already waiting. I was thinking, you know, it's December, so I make a to-do list because finally I have time to do things. And as I go, I realize my to-do list is growing faster than I'm ticking the things off the box. So, and all things are full of labor. I'm just, life, whether it's at home, whether it's at work, whether, wherever it is, all things are full of labor. And don't think that a stay-at-home mom does not have to labor. That, that is full-time labor. So all things, doesn't matter whether you're try, or, or bringing up children, whether you're going to work, whether you are in the ministry, doesn't matter what you do, labor upon labor, task upon task, project upon project, life is full of labor. Six days of the week you'll work so that you can play for one day of the week, right? That's, that, that just doesn't seem like a good deal. I remember as a child thinking, why do I have to go to school for five days a week so that I have two days of weekend? Who set up this schedule, right? That's, it's just not a good deal. Life under the sun is full of labor. And it just gets more as you get older. It's not like school is the worst. School is the, the best part of your labor, but nonetheless, it's, it's full of labor. And on top of that, you have, you've worked these six days, you've labored these six days, then you get one day where you get to rest or to play or to do whatever you want, and then 50% of that day is spent on sleeping, eating, driving somewhere, cleaning. And you're still not even doing, really, what you want to do. So half of one day of an entire week, you get to do something that you want to do. It's not, a, it's not a very good deal. It sounds pretty meaningless under the sun. That's the point. Anyone whose worldview limits them to under the sun and remains consistent should end up completely nihilistic. Should end up saying, this is a bad deal. Is this worth it? Now, I don't feel that way. But why don't I feel that way? Praise to God because of who He is, what He has done, right? But if you're consistent and you think that you're going to live life without God and you're going to give yourself to the desires of this world and that is going to satisfy you, you're going to end up where you're saying, this is a bad deal. This means nothing. It ends up meaningless. And you know what? That is the type of thinking that led to Stalin's Russia, Mao's China. Is this thing that means nothing. People mean nothing. Life means nothing. We don't want to end up there. We don't want to end up with the Epicureans in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, all they do is they eat and they drink for tomorrow we die. What else are people who really use their minds supposed to conclude under the sun? If the two poles of your existence the origin and your destiny, are defined by radical insignificance, why would there be any significance 
to your life here and now. There isn't. What gives your life significance is the fact that you are created with a purpose. And that what you do under the sun translates to beyond the sun. That is what gives your life meaning. So, Christian, where are your affections? What are you living for? Is your mind focused on cycling in circles around under the sun? Or does it extend beyond that to life beyond the sun, where God is, where He has purpose, meaning, fulfillment, and He has ultimately embodied that in Jesus Christ? Mm. Verse 8 continues. It says, All things are full of labor and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear with hearing. This is where he starts with there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing under the sun satisfies. Because our senses, in other words, the way in which we experience life, are in constant need of stimulation of something new. Our eyes, our ears, our hands... Our nose constantly wants to be stimulated with something new, something fresh. There's this repetitive, this constant need for something new. Why? Because everything that we stimulate it with is something finite, something temporal, something that has value right now. We are in need of constant satisfaction, but the things we satisfied with are temporal, are finite. You see, the thing is new is an illusion. New is an illusion. Something is only new until you have it. Once you've used it, it's not new. So there's nothing new under the sun. Have a look. Verse 9, it says, For the thing that hath been, it, shall, it, is, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said? See, this is new. It hath been already of all time, which was before us. It's almost as if life offers us a cheap carving knife and says, yeah, look, it's a new carving knife. And then you go and you cut, wow, it's so sharp. And then you use it, and then the next time you take it out of the, the drawer, it's like, oh, it's blunt. It doesn't, doesn't cut the way it used to. So that, that sharpness, that newness is lost as soon as you use it. And that's why he says nothing is new under the sun. We constantly need a new one. Our eyes want to see something new. Our ears want to hear something new, a new song, a new doctrine, a new story, like the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, where they constantly wanted to hear a new doctrine. That's all they constantly. That's all they wanted. They wanted to hear something new. They wanted to hear something. Tell me, tell me, what do you have to say? What do you think about it? It's constantly, I want to hear something new. My mouth wants to taste something new, wants to taste a new food, a new flavor. My nose wants to smell something new, or just coffee again. My, the sense of touch, sorry, that's very personal. My sense of touch wants to feel something new. It, I constantly want to experience new things. And as soon as I have that new thing, it's not new. It's kind of like tomorrow. Tomorrow is an illusion, right? As soon as you're in tomorrow, it's no longer tomorrow, it's today, and then there's no tomorrow. Same with this. There's nothing new. The cycle is on repeat, and nothing lasts. And as soon as it is attained, it immediately ages. Nothing remains new. There is an infinite appetite. 
that we have. Try, and we're trying to satiate it with finite things. An infinite appetite that's trying to be satisfied with finite things. It's almost as if man was created for more than what this finite world has to offer. Right? It's almost as if God created us with a desire for things that truly satisfy, and he shows us that this world doesn't have it. And so we have to reach to the infinite one to find what satisfies truly. And this is not just a thing. It is someone infinite who truly satisfies and provides true contentment irrespective of the state that I am. That is so important. Contentment is not based on stuff. It's based on someone. It's based on God. If you know Him and you are known of Him, then it doesn't matter where you are at in life or what phase or what position or what condition you find yourself in. You will find contentment because you are content in Him. A very good reference to that if you're making notes is Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. But for the sake of time, we will move on. Hebrews 13 and verse 5. As I was thinking on, this, on this, this, this idea of there is nothing new under the sun, especially when you read verse 10, it says, Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new, it hath been already of all time, which was before us. Perhaps new is not just a reference to the fact that as soon as you have something, it ages. Perhaps it's also a reference to the fact that, um, let me say, it's, it's not the specifics of man's invention, but rather the general category of the needs of man that's trying to be satisfied, right? So there are general categories, there are general things that people enjoy, people need, and so all we're doing is we're still satisfying the same need, but with different things. Nothing has changed from the time of Solomon. Solomon refers to those of the ancient, those of the past, Whereas we are standing now, what, 4,000, 3,000 years later, and we're looking at him as ancient, and not much in terms of our desires and the things we live for has changed. You see, maybe using an example, is he speaks of music. We're also interested in new music, new songs. It's still, it's, it's still just a song. There's nothing new. It's different music, but it's still just music. A new car, you know, it, it's still just a car. It's still just a means of transportation. I can promise you that back in the day when there were no cars, people were also thinking, I'm going to buy myself that new carriage. I'm going to get myself this big stallion to book. It's still it's, I, the new one, the better one, the faster one, the prettier one. The new fashion line, it's still clothes. It still needs to be washed. It's still going to wear off. And you know what? That which is in fashion now, it's been there before. Not too long ago even. A new career, a new position, it's still work. It's still labor. There's nothing new about it. That, that's the point that he's making. Even a new ideology or a new, a new movement, it's been there before. Nothing is new. Because it's still addressing the same common to man desire from eternity past to future and as soon as it's acquired, it's no longer new. It's a chasing after the wind. Verse 11, it says, There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come 
after. There is no remembrance of former things. It's kind of like someone coming to you. Do you remember, um, do you remember what's his face? Man, um, that guy who invented electricity, you know, that, that guy who basically made everything that we see in the Industrial Revolution possible. You know, that, what's his name? You think he had brown hair, you know. That, that, it's that type. You, you see how even people who did significant things somehow just get lost in the past. There's no remembrance of things, former things. We constantly enjoy the benefits of new inventions and things around us. We take them for granted without giving much thought to those who worked countless hours and sacrificed precious time with family and on things they could have spent that had eternal value, and we just take those things for granted. They wanted to make a name for themselves under the sun, only to realize that as soon as the sun sets on their life, their memory starts to fade. Under, I'm not trying to be doom and gloom. I'm saying under the sun, don't stay here. Don't focus on life under the sun. You have to reach out beyond it. Just as they are forgotten, so will we be forgotten by those who are under the sun. It's not personal, it's fact. So what I think we should do with that is spend time where it matters, with things that matter to those to whom you matter. Right? That's where we should be spending our time and effort. Now the last point is even wisdom has its drawbacks. Verse 12 says, I the preacher was king over Israel in Jerusalem and I gave my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all things that were done under the sun, under heaven. And this sore travail, this sore travail God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith. And I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and I have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and perceive that this also is vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth um, knowledge increaseth sorrow. You can see where I get my, the title for my point, even wisdom has drawbacks, you can see in verse 18. But essentially what we see in verse 13 is that Solomon applied himself to try and understand what the purpose is of all of man's business under the sun. He tried to apply himself. He, he sought it out, it says, to seek and to search. He tried to understand it. But if we are limited to the framework of this finite life, it is just sore travail and vexation of spirit. That vexation of spirit can be translated as feeding on wind. That's what I'm doing. I am feeding on wind. That's all you're doing if you are limited to this framework under the sun. He did not come to his conclusion through purely philosophizing and through observing, but through actually giving himself over to those things which the world promised 
would satisfy. He's talking from experience and not theory. He's talking from someone who said, I gave my heart, verse 17, to know wisdom and madness and folly. Why would he give himself to folly if he had wisdom? Well, sometimes you have to study the opposite of something, the negative side of something, to understand the positive side thereof, right? If, if you want to, you learn certain things about darkness when you look at light, because darkness is the absence of light, right? So by looking at the opposite of something, you learn things about it. And so by giving himself to madness and folly, he learned things about wisdom. If you understand how madness and foolishness would approach a matter, it may be a very wise thing to do the opposite, right? So he gives himself over. He experienced these things, and through his experience, he understood how all of this tends to folly. But even if you have sought after wisdom, right, and you should seek after wisdom, the same man who wrote this book wrote the book of Proverbs, which is filled with instruction in wisdom, okay? So you should seek out wisdom, but even if you do, it still doesn't guarantee smooth sailing. That's the point. It doesn't mean just because you have wisdom that all of a sudden all the external problems of life just fade away. Wisdom and knowledge, yes, will keep you from foolishness and regret. Wisdom will um, keep you from trouble and from being taken before your time. Wisdom will help you to consider your end and to lay up treasure in heaven. So wisdom definitely is beneficial. Wisdom is definitely needed. It is the better of these two coins, the sides of the coin. It is the better, but it still has its drawbacks. But why does it often lead to grief and sorrow, as it says in verse 18? Why does it lead to grief and sorrow? Well, firstly, the more you know, the more you realize how little you know. <laughs> the more you know, the more you realize how little you truly understand. If you expected that through your pursuit of knowledge and your pursuit of wisdom, that you will have a path that is laid for success and for lasting happiness, all that will happen is you'll be disappointed when you realize it doesn't always turn out that way. So you, 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 you're setting, if you say that through, just like the pursuit of anything else, right? That's his point. Just like you can pursue money, you can pursue fame, you can pursue all these things. Just like you pursue that, and the end of that is not as rewarding as you thought it would be. The same with pursuing wisdom and knowledge. Thinking this will satisfy, it ends up not always as great as you thought it would be. And so that also can tend to this disappointment, this sorrow, this grief. Additionally, I think the wiser you become, the more frustrating it is and the more heart-wrenching it is to see foolishness around you. You look at lives that are filled with foolishness and you realize, I can't do anything about that, right? I, I, I know there is a better way. I, I know there's a right way. But this person keeps wanting to live in that foolishness. That brings sorrow. And so the more you know about something, the more you understand, the more you realize how little understanding there may be around you. Also, the more you get frustrated with your own foolish decisions and the effect of your foolishness and the relationships around you. Because you know better. You know better. You know what God expects. 
And so you're growing in this wisdom and in this knowledge, and yet you're still making dumb decisions. That also induces a lot of grief. As verse 15 says, I'm crooked. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. That which is wanting cannot be numbered. I'm crooked. I still lack so much. I wish I could just do something to fix it all. But under the sun, with my finite knowledge and wisdom, I cannot do much. That is what he is saying. It's almost like you've been handed this Rubik's Cube with blocks missing. And it doesn't matter how hard you spin it and how much you try, you cannot get it all sorted out and straightened out. There is something inherently flawed about that Rubik's Cube. There is something inherently flawed about us. We have issues. We're spinning the Rubik's Cube as fast and as hard as we can, but we cannot get the the numbers, the colors everywhere where they should be. We are inherently flawed. Can you spin your Rubik's Cube of your life in such a way to straighten it out? You can't. Just as you think you've straightened out the blue side, you turn it and you see, oh, the red one is still messed up. And so every time you change perspective, you see that, okay, I fixed this, but now this. Now I fixed this, now this. There's something that is crooked that cannot be made straight. There's something we don't understand about life. There are things we don't understand about life and its purpose. There's something wanting, verse 15, that cannot be numbered. Under the sun, we, it, it, we cannot make sense of it all. We are bent towards sin and pride and laziness and vain religious practice. Bent towards all these things. And how do we propose to straighten out ourselves? We can't. And only someone who is inherently straight and lacking nothing can help you with this. This person is known as Jesus Christ, who filleth all in all. Every want, every lack, he is the one who filleth all in all. He can straighten you perfectly. He can fill the missing blocks to your Rubik's Cube. Why? Because He becomes your life. He completely takes your place. He gives you the straightened Rubik's Cube as a gift of grace. And He says, walk in newness of life. Walk in a life that has purpose, a life that has fulfillment, a life that has joy. But if you exclude Him and you live under the sun and this is your perspective, it is vanity. It is a vexation of spirit. It is meaningless. and It is incomprehensible. Do not live for these things. Set your affections on things above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of the Father. Amen. Let's all pray. Let's ask the Lord to, to help stir this in our hearts and hide this in our hearts. Lord, our desire is that, that you will continue to work in our hearts, Lord. Um, this is such an important life lesson. This is so important to understand these things, to wrap our head around these things, Lord. But Lord, our flesh is always kicking against it. Lord, please help us to, to know that the only way in which we find true satisfaction, meaning, and purpose in our lives is through reaching out beyond the sun. Lord, to you who 
who rules over all, to you who, who gives purpose, who created us. Lord, help us to seek your face, seek your will. Um, Lord, where we're in a season of life where things start to, to slow down and we, we get to reflect a bit, Lord, on things past, I, I pray that you would please point out the things that are utterly vain in our lives. Help us to pursue things of meaning that we may look back on our lives one day and see profit, not just expenses that outweighed the gains, Lord. Thank you so much, Father, that you have given us this, this great book to shake us up, to wake us up, to help us see the vanity that surrounds us. Lord, help us not to fall prey to it, but help us to live lives that are different, that, that are called out, that, um, that have purpose. Thank you so much, Father, for this privilege we have, and we ask that you please continue to work in our hearts and Bless us as we continue in the rest of this day. In Jesus' name we pray.